love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Have you noticed I've been drinking a lot more water? I have noticed that, yes. And the reason is because we got one of those uh, water bubbly machine things. Yep. You know, you can make uh, sparkling water out of just regular old tap water. And so I've been flavoring it. For example, that's... That's lime, but I've been getting kind of bored with the typical flavors, and I was I was going through the fridge looking for possible ideas to flavor the water with, and I seriously considered Baby Bell cheese. <laughs> I didn't do it yet. I don't think I can express to you how my gag reflex <laughs> responded to cheese-flavored water. Cheese water. I, <laughs> no, <laughs> not for you? No, not no. for me. Um, banana. That was another one I considered. Right, I don't think banana would be terrible. It might be pretty good. Right. But uh, I don't know. For some reason, I'm intrigued by Baby Bell cheese-flavored water. What about hot dog-flavored water? No, I've had that before. Pop on some Limp biscuit and... I've actually had hot dog water. What? Why? Uh, well, it was out of necessity. I, had, I was single at the time, and I had boiled some hot dogs, and later that night... I was really, really thirsty, and it was in the wintertime, and the pipes froze in the trailer that I lived in, and so I drank drank, I drank the hot dog water. The hot dog water that had just been sitting on the stove? Yeah, yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I wouldn't do that again, but maybe if I carbonated it. I, I don't even know what to think about what you've just said. I, I'm very concerned. I, I'm either surprised that you're alive or I believe in your immune system so much. Yeah. You know, my doctor's surprised that I'm still alive, too. Yeah. He keeps telling me, you have no right to be as healthy as you are. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Got this email, dear Cat and Jethro. I seem to recall you telling a story of a guy whose job was to simply wipe the ass of the royal family members. Mm. Is that true? And if so, what was the name of that position? Flying my freak flag in Spokane, Washington, Carla. <clears throat> well, Carla, yes. Number one, it is true. Number two, the name of that position, I would say, is maybe a kind of a semi-crouch, but holding your nose with one hand. <laughs> <A> semi-crouch. <laughs> Actually, the uh, 
the job title was groom of the stool, and uh, it was a highly sought after position. In fact, I, I did a little more research into it. They actually carried around portable commodes with a washing bowl, water, and towels. And then some of them took the job so seriously that they would, um, they took it upon themselves to monitor the monarch's bowel movements. Oh, yeah. they try to anticipate when the next one would be coming? Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> Although my first thought was that they were examining the, the bowel movement itself with oh. like a pair of chopsticks. I know a guy that used to do that, actually. What are you talking about? <laughs> it was a guy who was so convinced that he was going to get colon cancer that he would uh, fish his poo out of the toilet with chopsticks and examine it. Who was this person? Um, I, I'm not going to say his name, but he is a well-known radio consultant. That you know, that yeah. told you he took his yes. poop out of the toilet. He yes. told you this. Yeah. He, from his mouth, from his mouth, put it to your yeah. ear holes with, his with father, nothing in between. His father had died from colon cancer. Okay. And he was so fearful that he was going to get it. Did he think he could spot colon cancer in his poop? Apparently, he'd done the research and uh, he had he had an idea of what he was looking for. I, I don't know. I didn't really press him on that, but uh, yeah. Did you? You worked with him. Uh, yeah, he was my consultant for the morning show I was on. Yeah, he would come into town and tell me everything I was doing wrong, which is the job of a consultant. And I would always think to myself after a particularly brutal meeting with him, at least I don't fish my poo out of a toilet with chopsticks. I, but he told you? Yeah, like, yes. From he, his face? He did. Yeah. To your face? To my face. It's true. such a strange thing to share uh-huh. with a person. Especially when you only saw like twice a year. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, so groom of the stool. But there are a lot of weird jobs throughout history like this one. Did you know, did you ever wonder, for example, where the term whipping boy came from? Um, no. It was an unfortunate vocation in ancient times. It was forbidden to physically harm a young prince, obviously, because they, they were, were the young prince. They were royalty, right? And but you couldn't even spank them if they were naughty back in those days. Like even the nope. king? Nope, not even the king, because royal blood flowed through their veins. So when a prince reached a certain age, they would assign him a whipping boy, and the whipping boy would take the spankings for things the prince did. Oh, that's terrible. And it sounds pretty cruel, doesn't it? And in fact, it was, but it was also very effective because the whipping boy would be raised with the prince. Oh my gosh, that's so awful. Offered high status as well as a comfortable surrounding to, uh, to live in. It was almost like a little brother to the prince. And because they were raised together, a special bond would be created. So when the prince did something naughty, and the whipping boy would take the punishment for the prince's action, the prince would feel guilty and would be less inclined to misbehave in the future. Well, I suppose that's a good plan, but I can't see that it always played (laughs) out that way. Mm. Once the prince ascended to the throne and became king, he would often reward his whipping boy with palaces and riches to make up for it. Oh, that's kind of nice. Something there for that, I guess. And then there was this job during Elizabethan times. (laughs) The job was knock nobbler. (laughs) That sounds dirty. During this time period, London had a real problem with packs of wild dogs. Oh. 
and it became routine for these wild dogs to follow large crowds of people because they would scavenge whatever was left behind. Often, this was not that big a deal, but it was when it came to church services. It was an oddly common experience for people to be in a church and a service would be in progress and suddenly a pack of wild dogs would storm the sanctuary. <laughs> this, of course, was disruptive to the service and so the vocation of knock knobbler was created. And they had a unique job of chasing wild dogs out of churches. That was their job description. Chasing wild dogs out of churches. But how did how does that name apply to I chasing have, dogs? I have no idea. But I would love to know. So I'll, I'll check. I'll check into that. So the position of knock knobbler evolved over time. We got to a point where wild dogs weren't storming churches quite huh. as often. Yeah, it wasn't as big an issue. So the knock knobblers turned their attention to unruly children. <laughs> If a child was being disruptive or unruly, the knock knobbler would scold the child. And if that didn't work, they would physically remove the child from the church. And everyone agreed that it was cool that this rando yeah, yeah. has beaten their kids. That was the way it was back then. But more than anything, I just really love the title of knock knobbler. It's a good one. All right. Trigger warning. This one's a trigger warning for you. Uh, specifically, but anybody who uh, gets the heebie-jeebies when they think about leeches. <sighs> Steal yourself, prepare your pork taint. Now, we know leeches were used for many different medical procedures, especially over the centuries of medieval times. As misguided as these procedures were, they were very popular for a very long time. It was a form of natural bloodletting. And the question really to be asked is, where did all those leeches come from? Well, they were collected. And that was a job. Leech collector. You're so handsome. <laughs> this was complicated. You know, you think it would be pretty easy. You just go and you scoop them out of a pond with a net. But no, it was much more complicated than that. Some leech collectors would use amputated body parts to attract the leeches. But amputated body parts were not an easy thing to find. So some would use pieces of slaughtered animals. Did you just say amputated body parts? I did. I picture them dumpster diving behind the hospitals. Okay, I'm listening again. During, during I had checked out for a little okay. bit, but now I'm re-engaged. All right, fine. But if they couldn't get body parts, they would use parts from slaughtered animals. But that was expensive, too. So the most affordable option was use your own legs. No, no. No. Leech collectors would no. wait, wait into bogs and swampy waters and marshes and let the leeches attach themselves. I wish I hadn't re-listened. Now, you're probably thinking, all right, that's really gross, but at least you can just pull them right off as soon as they attach. No, you cannot. Leeches are very difficult to remove when, they first, when they're first attached. Leech collectors would have to let the leech feed for about 20 minutes before they could be removed without harming them. Now, we grew up in Maine, where leeches were not an uncommon thing in uh, freshwater lakes. And the way we would remove them, do you remember? Salt. Put, put salt on them and they will curl up and drop off. But that was harmful 
to the leeches. And you wanted to keep them safe. Yeah. And the more leeches you collected, the more money you made, but also the more blood you lost. Not to mention the diseases and the illnesses that the leeches gave people. Leech collector, not a good job. I hate that. Let's talk about barbers. Okay. It was, yes, it, barbers. It was tough to be a barber. They you, also bloodletted, right? Yes. <laughs> it was tough to be a <laughs> barber in good. the Middle Ages because you were expected also to be a surgeon. The reasoning behind this was you were well acquainted with sharp things for cutting hair and shaving faces. <laughs> You're skilled in using sharp, pokey things. Hence, it was expected you could perform complicated medical procedures. So by that logic, would butchers also be surgeons? Oh, that's barbaric. I wonder if that's where the word came from. I bet. A barber was expected to not only provide a shave and a haircut, but also perform amputations tooth pullings, oh, and bloodletting. To advertise their business, they would hammer a pole into the ground right outside the door and they would paint it with a red stripe and a white stripe. Sure. The red stripe represented the blood and the white stripe, the bandages. And we still use barber poles to this day, although if it's a good barber, there's limited bloodletting. Have you ever had a traditional like barber shop shave? I never have. I've always wanted one. I think we should do that for you. I would love that. I think that would be fun. Get some hot towels. Yeah. And then I could order uh, like a straight razor. What, you're going to do it? And I, Yeah. It can't be that hard, right? <laughs> I'm sure there's a YouTube video for it. And then there's this profession. This was in Roman times. Vomit collector. Oh, yeah. Vomitoriums. Yeah. The wealthy and the royals... They loved to strap on the old feed bag back then. The problem was, after eating for lengthy periods of time, they felt full and they couldn't eat anymore. The answer, induced vomiting. And that was referenced in the movie Hunger Games. When they went to the Capitol and Katniss was invited to the Fancy Pants party and they were talking about how, oh, well, once you've ate your fill, <laughs> then you drink this and you throw up so you can eat some more. And of course, the people in the districts were starving and it seemed so disgusting that right. they would waste in that way. And anyway, so that was probably where that came from. It was surprisingly common back then. Ugh. At first, people would excuse themselves to go to a bathroom, which became known as the vomitarium, as you have uh, pointed out, and that's where they would vomit. But then it became so widely accepted that people just stopped leaving the table to vomit. Instead, when they sat down, each royal diner was assigned their own vomit catcher. Ugh. The vomit catcher would stand next to the guest with a bowl that was designed for catching the vomit. And it was not uncommon that the feast would be so big and there would be so many people that there just weren't enough vomit catchers or bowls to go around. There was a vomit catcher shortage. I have a question. Yeah. Was it seen as a sign of status to consume more than... Oh, I'm sure. And, and so it was... Maybe people weren't necessarily interested in eating more and more and more, but they were interested in people seeing them eat more and more and more. Is that it? I think that has a lot to do with it. Plus, just the pleasure of eating. It's it's pleasurable. But is it pleasurable after you've vomited? I don't think I would feel pleasure after that, but apparently they did. All right. So in these larger feasts where there weren't enough vomit catchers or bowls to go around... 
The diners would simply vomit on the floor. No. And it was the job of the vomit collectors to clean the vomit off the floor as well as empty the vomit bowls. How did we go from that kind of... Social protocol? Yes, to like no farting or bodily functions yeah, of any kind. Yeah, chew with your mouth closed. Right. Yeah, <laughs> we've, we've come a long way. Well, I'd say, we, you know, we've actually regressed a little bit, but <laughs> there was a time when we had come a long way. Yes, true. <laughs> so my question to you is, which would you rather be, groom of the stool, vomit collector, or leech collector? <laughs> I wish you could see the look on Kat's face right now. It's priceless. My information came from fascinating article in Ancient Origins by Lex Lee, Wikipedia, and History.com. I would go with the vomit collector. You think so? I, I think so, yeah. I know that would make me vomit, though. Isn't that funny how that, that just triggers a person? It's like instinctive. Yeah. It's like yawning, only a lot smellier. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> That's words of wisdom right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Vomiting is like yawning, only smellier. <laughs> the Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, that thing in the middle. A planet was recently discovered, and it's been named HD 189733b. Now, the name of the planet certainly isn't very interesting, but the planet itself is. According to NASA, on the planet HD 189733b, it probably rains shards of glass. Let's check the inbox of oddities. We got a message from Laura listening to the newest episode on the Lysol discussion. Mm. That's where you were talking about how Lysol originally marketed as a douche. Yeah. Also, birth control. 
I used to work in a convenience store. One night, a guy came in and bought four bottles of Summer's Eve. He must have seen the look on my face, which surely reflected the thought, someone has a serious problem. (laughs) Because he did go on to explain why he was purchasing four bottles of douche. It was for his dog. His dog had been sprayed by a skunk, and apparently douche would help remove the smell. Okay. Huh. I have not heard that. I had not either. But then she wrote in a correction. It wasn't Summer's Eve. It was Massengill. Oh, okay. So, I mean, thanks for the clarification, Laura. (laughs) We do appreciate that. Last episode, I mentioned how we went through customs. And every time I go through customs, immediately in my head, I start making a mental checklist of things in my bag mm. that, that my possession of might result in uh, incarceration. Yeah, you're much better at that than I am. Jamie writes, I have the same thought when I go through the airport. Do I have anything that could get me arrested? Well, my bag got pulled on my way to New Hampshire one day, and I asked why. And he said, because you have M&Ms. I asked why, why M&Ms? And apparently they look like little tiny bombs. So heads up, future travelers. What? Yeah, I guess it, it triggers something in the system. Oh, all right. Although I've had M&Ms in my, in my bag and I've never been pulled for that. I brought M&Ms home from Mexico because... That's right, you did. They, uh, they're peanut M&Ms and I was... <laughs> I don't know why I thought this was so interesting. When we were in Cancun, I bought peanut M&Ms and they were M&Ms con money. And I noticed that when we were in Cabo... They had M&M's with peanuts, but they were called M&M's with cajuate. I think that's how it's pronounced. And so I bought them, and then I I went to the internets, and it was like, mani. And then I was like, see, but this is cajuate. And I, then I realized that they're, you know, two different parts of a very large country. And <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So I, I have some M&M's that we've got to eat. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. Find out what's real and what's not when it comes to famous conspiracy theories, like those surrounding notorious assassinations and secret societies. Discover the weak and deceptive underpinnings of modern political ideologies and religious beliefs. Join me as I attempt to shed some light on our historical blind spots. New episodes every two weeks. Find historical blindness on most podcast players and platforms. There are really many reasons to listen to our podcast, Big Picture Science. It's kind of a challenge to summarize them all, Molly. Okay, here's a reason to listen to our show, Big Picture Science, because you love to be surprised by science news. We love to be surprised by science news. So, for instance, I learned on our own show that I had been driving around with precious metals in my truck before it was stolen. That was brought up in our show about precious metals and also rare metals, like most of the things in your catalytic converter. 
I was surprised to learn that we may begin naming heat waves like we do hurricanes. You know, prepare yourself for heat wave Lucifer. I don't think I can prepare myself for that. Look, we like surprising our listeners. We like surprising ourselves by reporting new developments in science and while asking the big picture questions about why they matter and how they will affect our lives today and in the future. Well, we can't affect lives in the past, right? No, I I guess that's a point. (laughs) So the podcast is called Big Picture Science, and you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. We are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us. We hope you'll take a listen. When all the other podcasts get together at a dinner party, we're the podcast that sits with our legs crossed by the fireplace and listens politely. This is The Box of Oddities. Tell me a story, please. Happy to do so, my fine sir. I did get a request uh, not long ago. Somebody had said, if we could just do a straight up trigger warning anytime I do true crime. I'm not the only one who does true crime, but I think I do probably more often than you. But either way, if we could just give them a heads up, and I'm happy to do that. Uh, Heads up, this is true crime. Wow, an episode with two trigger warnings. Yours was grosser. (laughs) Wait, leeches are grosser to you than murdered people. August 11, 1994. There's a crew of early morning fishermen out on the Lady Marion in Hawkesbury River, northwest of Sydney. Now, this trawler was out and about looking for squid. Apparently, there's a large population in the mouth of the river. And the boat's captain, Mark Peterson, though I did find one picture where he was noted as Neil Peterson, but maybe it's Mark Neil Peterson. I don't know. Anyway, he felt a strong tug on the fishing net. So the fishermen were like, yay, this is it. We've, we've snagged a, a spid squeezies. So <laughs> then as they're lifting the net out, they discovered that it was not some sort of large fish or squid or whatever. It was something man-made. It looked to be a steel frame. And as they pulled it more and more out of the water, they discovered it was in the shape of a crucifix. The boat's captain recalled to the press at the time, as I pulled it in, I saw there were plastic bags tied to it. Oh, no. And then I saw a bone stuck out of one of the bags. Of course, this means it's probably not just regular old sea debris, right? But they were hopeful that maybe it was just an animal, maybe a deer tied to a crucifix. Uh Sure. Mm. Happens all the time in Australia. But no, they had hauled up the remains of a man tied to a cross. Oh, my God. How creepy is that? It's super creepy. And it gets worse. The fishermen called local police, who had the body examined by members of their physical evidence section. The decomposing body was wrapped in plastic, and they found that the remains were held to the steel with wire wrapped around the head and torso of the victim. The body and rack, now at the New South Wales Institute for Forensic Science, was examined by pathologist Dr. Christopher Lawrence. The forensic pathologist found that the remains were of a human male aged between 21 and 41, and that the body had been intentionally arranged on the crucifix. I don't know how that would have happened on accident, but they did rule that out. Okay. The... 
crucifix was made up of one tall piece of flat metal, approximately six feet tall, or 1.82 meters, with two cylindrical pieces of metal welded perpendicular near the top and bottom, with one piece of rebar in the center, also perpendicular, but bent almost in an L shape. To support the body? To which the arms were strapped to. Okay, all right, all right. This is horrifying. There was a noose wrapped around the body's neck. Wire and orange rope were used to bind the body to the metal frame. Under the black plastic, Lawrence found that there were clothes, hair, soft tissue, and adipocere attached to the remains. No, adipocere, that is like grave wax or... Grave wax, yes. Yeah, okay. All the fingerprints, though, had been eroded, making identification impossible. The body had been wearing mass-produced Australian clothing, offering little help. But the examination of the corpse revealed that the remains belonged to a dark-haired Caucasian male, possibly of Mediterranean or Central European descent. He likely stood between 5'2 and 5'4". He had no personal belongings on him except for a pack of cigarettes and a lighter, which, again, were not distinctive in any way and offered no help. Lawrence said that the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head and that John Doe was presumed to have died around the 11th of January, 1993. And, but, and when was it discovered again? August of 94. Okay. What wasn't clear is if the John Doe had been tied to the frame before or after he was killed. Oh, no. What they did determine was that the steel structure had likely been made to the man's exacting measurements. The welding job was alarmingly professional and very concise, and the cross frame matched the man's wingspan perfectly. It was also incredibly heavy, unlikely that a single person could have lifted and dumped it into the river, suggesting more than one perpetrator. But how do you find perpetrators if you don't know who the victim is? Police investigators created a facial reconstruction of the man, which was sent to media outlets across the country who began referring to the deceased as Rack Man, and a $100,000 reward was offered for information. The case was featured on an episode of Australia's Most Wanted, but no one came forward to identify him or offer any information. Now, because it was a crucifix, a lot of people positioned this as some sort of satanic cult being responsible. But of course, this was prime satanic panic time. So everything was attributed in some way to a Satanist group, which uh, almost never was the case. (laughs) Almost never. Anyway, it was 1994, DNA was in its very early years, and the amount of time that the body had been in the water, police estimated between 6 and 12 months, compromised any DNA that might have been available for extraction. Now, even though police weren't getting good details, they did have some tips. Some believed the body might belong to... Some believed the body might belong to convicted drug dealer Joe Biviano, who went missing in 1993. But there was no way to make a positive identification because Biviano had no dental records on file, and the DNA sample from one of Biviano's relatives didn't match the sample taken from Rackman's remains. Tips from the public also led investigations into missing persons Peter Matrice, a King's Cross businessman. 
Police, though, had previously received information that Peter had been bashed to death and his body had been dumped into the ocean. Hmm. But Matrice was taller than the John Doe, and his sister, when questioned by police, said that his teeth looked nothing like the remains that police were working with. Also... Chris Dale Flannery, who was known to underworld figures as Mr. Rent-A-Kill. He had disappeared in May of 1985, but when police compared the alleged hitman's dental records with Rackman's, they didn't match. Mr. Rent-A-Kill. I can see that on billboards all across the Australian countryside, because it sounds like a billboard ad. Call now, Mr. Rent-A-Kill. I see what you're saying. I wonder if he had a jingle. What do you, what do you imagine that might sound like? Something like this. Mr. Rent-A-Killer, Rent-A-Killer, he's real bad. And clearly, I left a space in the show, and after production, I went and created that jingle and then reinserted it. Thank goodness. Thank goodness you did all that work. Yeah. For that jingle. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Sounded great. I'm sure it will be. We'll see. Also, police at this time are looking into gambling addict Max Tanzeski who went missing in Sydney's new town in January of 1993. But with no way to confirm or deny that connection, they kept searching. Now, of course, this very gangland-style disposal of the body suggested that the victim was involved in something unlawful. Like, this isn't just how regular old people get murdered, right? Yeah, it sounds to me like the type of execution that they made the guy watch them create this metal crucifix i mean clearly they measured him for it like a suit yeah and then maybe they made him weld it himself oh wow i hadn't thought about that you're getting real grimy there that's my job (laughs) getting grimy getting grimy mr getting grimy do you have a jingle it's funny you ask (laughs) mr getting grimy Detective Chief Inspector John Lehman from NSW Unsolved Homicide Team told a crime reporter, Justine Ford, until you identify the victim, you haven't got a starting point. At least with a victim who has been identified, you can look into uh, who this person was and ask questions like, what was he doing? Who were his associates? Was he in trouble? Was he known to police? And if so, for what reasons? But they didn't have those answers. So the remains were being held at Glebe Morgue for more than two decades. Whoa. Known as Unknown Human Remains E48293. 20 years later, the case is now in the hands of Detective Chief Inspector John Lehman from New South Wales Unsolved Homicide Team. And he hoped that the metal rack and the unusual circumstances would lead to clues and that the unbelievable advances in DNA testing would help solve the case. And he was right. Yay! DNA confirmed the identity of the remains until now, only known as Rackman, was now identified as Max Tenzevsky. The 37-year-old Tanzevsky was a habitual gambler, and it wasn't unusual for him to withdraw large sums from the bank. It also wasn't unusual for him to travel to the Gold Coast on gambling binges either, and to be quote-unquote missing for days at a time. Tanzevsky was reportedly never seen again after January 11, 1993, and that was the estimated date of the victim's death. 
But this time, police found that he'd withdrawn $1,800 from his bank and never returned home. Understandably, police estimated that Tanzevsky might have withdrawn money from his account to pay a debt. He was known as a wild gambler with little self-control. But maybe the amount that he was paying, the 1800 wasn't enough to pay off the debtor for some reason, or the person he owed got angry and then killed Tanzevsky. It's unknown. But the meaning behind the method of disposal is still a mystery, as is, of course, the perpetrator or perpetrators. But it's a lot more likely, as we've talked about, that a crime will be solved when you know the identity of the victim. And we can only hope that that is the case in this situation. I wonder if now I'm just, you know, creating things in my You're head. You're riffing. Yeah. What probably happened. What probably happened. <laughs> I love it. when people, You know what probably happened? <laughs> no, it probably didn't happen. You just came up with that idea and you want to add some credibility to your theory. So, you know what probably happened? Yeah. Um, he owed somebody a lot of money. And to motivate him to pay the money, they fitted him for this thing. Oh. And they said, you've got until X to pay it. Uh-huh. And then he comes back with only 1800 and they're like, uh, yeah, uh, time to put on your new iron suit. Yeah, I never understood that, though, because someone who owes you money cannot pay you back if they're dead. Like, that's yeah, just, well, maybe, it's just maybe not... He had just run out of chances, and they were like, we're never going to get the money. I mean... It's hard to say. And you need to set an example. I've watched enough mob movies to know this. You have to set an example. I'm not condoning what happened to Max. I'm just saying I watch a lot of mob movies. That is true. Mm -hmm. I got most of my information from news.com.au, strangeremains.com, unsolved true crime, medium.com, and unidentified wiki. Wow. I'm glad they're on the right track now. Yeah. That's crazy. Want to welcome our latest members to the Order of Freaks on Patreon, Ryan, Susan, and Dennis. Appreciate you guys uh, su supporting us. And as always, the invitation to become a member of the Order of Freaks is... And as always, the invitation for you to become a member of the Order of Freaks is always out there. We'd love to have you. And we appreciate the support. You can find the link at our website, theboxofoddities.com. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, we wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2022 All rights reserved And disgusting. It was <laughs> yes. really, really rough. I know. It was I know, honey. I know. 
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.